I'm Peyton, and this is the Free Body Podcast, the podcast for every body. Well, I certainly had a beautiful weekend. How about you guys? Election's over now, finally. I can tear my eyes away from CNN, and, and now the real work can begin and bring us closer, hopefully, to some significant change. Here's hoping. Crossing fingers, making the phone calls, sending the postcards. Let's do it. Um, today, my guest is Javian Lee, who is a filmmaker and a competitive powerlifter in Brooklyn, New York. And this conversation covers a lot, like a lot. We go from fitness versus creativity to the uptick of anti-Asian assault since COVID hit, to the fight and flight instinct, the importance of representation, toxic masculinity, and so on. So strap in, folks. This is Javian. I was very active outdoors, I, you know, like building forts, like running around in the woods behind my, my house all the time. Um, but with sports, I wasn't very coordinated. Like I, I played soccer for a while. Like my, my dad and my uncle were on the varsity team in high school and they were like all county. They were really good. Tried to teach me. I wasn't really good at that. Tried playing basketball when I was like seven or eight. I could not like reach the rim with the, with the basketball. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so growing up, I never thought I was like really athletic. I would sometimes go running with, uh, with my dad, but uh, I also got into skateboarding for a little bit. Oh, so, very cool. Yeah. So there was like some coordination there and I felt like, oh, I can like, you know, like ollie down these steps or do these grinds and slides. Was there a game you really liked to play? Not necessarily a sport. But like for me, capture the flag was like my favorite thing ever to play. Uh, kickball was definitely my favorite in in gym class. I just like like right when your foot makes contact with the ball in a certain way and it just goes flying. It just just feels really powerful. I guess when I turned ten, I was playing piano growing up, and I uh, got into the Juilliard Pre College program. So I just kind of mm-hmm. I I just pursued music. And I didn't really feel like I was athletic until I hit puberty. Mm. And then like at that point, it was really too late to play sports. Okay. So I was just focused on music. But um, that's when like I felt like, oh, I was like, I'm athletic. I can actually like, uh, play certain sports now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. didn't have the time. And also, um, I didn't want to like hurt my hands as a aspiring pianist. So right, that's... that was very short lived. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember that being a thing at, at Juilliard, like the hands, they were a precious commodity, like you could not, yeah. you had to be so careful. What came up in your body as a pianist, like doing repetitive motion over and over again? Like, were there certain things that came up in that regard? Not really. I mean, like, I, I just, I feel like I had a natural like mind finger connection. So like that always came very easily to me. Um, but just like the pressure and like the environment of going to a competitive school and trying to turn like this art form into a competition just kind of burned me out. Mm. So um, by junior year of high school, I knew I didn't really want to pursue it after high school. And at that point, I started dabbling more with sports. My younger siblings were playing tennis, so I was I started playing with them a lot. and. I got good enough within like four months of practicing with them to make the varsity team. Wow. Senior year. So I just like really got into tennis for a while. <laughs> oh my God. How long did yeah. you do it? Um, throughout co- I played throughout college um, with my siblings and just like friends. And I got to the point where I was teaching tennis at a country club. 
and I like helped at I was like a part-time assistant coach at Drew University for the women's team for oh for one season um right out of college yeah it was at the point where it's like I was kind of obsessed with it and we we're playing like three hours a day and just like practicing like breaking down video just like working on my technique and just yeah it was a good like five years of my life I think Did your relationship to your body change when you started using it more for tennis? Do you remember, did that, did, was there any kind of mental shift that happened once you were suddenly like, you know, exercising like that intensely for three hours a day? Oh, totally. Um, so before that, my exercise would just be solely focused on like my looks and just, you know, like feelings and looking slim. Mm -hmm. Um, like run three miles a day, just like lift some weights uh, just to get like a pump. But like once I started doing tennis, like my focus was on getting better at tennis. So anything I did physically or like nutrition wise was to maximize performance. After college, what happened? Did you keep playing tennis and for how long or did you kind of stop shortly after? No, after college, I was more focused on like building my writing and directing career. So was doing that and just working a day job to make money to to supplement that. Mm -hmm. um, and there was probably a good three to four year period where I didn't exercise at all. Wow. Did you miss yeah. it? I did, but I also didn't really think about it at the time mm -hmm. just because I was so invested in, uh, you know, making short films and writing scripts and things like that. Eventually got to a point where like I was eating the same as I did when I was playing tennis and being really active, but mm -hmm. not exerting any energy whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I just gained a lot of weight during mm -hmm. that time period. And like within three to four years, I would look at myself in the mirror and just be like, oh, I'm feeling like really, really heavy now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it, it did have like a, a mental toll, I think. Just feeling like your body looks totally different from what it once did. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Once your body looks a certain way, like I I got into good shape, quote unquote good shape, like a few years ago. And then I had all this anxiety about my body going back to the way that it was or mm -hmm. of me losing it. Or, and I know this is a lot of mental games that I play with myself and it's a lot of perception that isn't necessarily reality. But I remember that kind of anxiety lurking in the corner, just kind of like... <laughs> forcing me to keep going or, or do things to a to a point where it was like maybe too much just out of fear mm -hmm. of losing what I had found you know yeah. um I'm curious like at the end of that when you when you were feeling a, a certain way when you looked in the mirror I guess how did that manifest did you did you find yourself kind of sitting in that and and perpet did that perpetuate the situation and the feeling of it or did you start to kind of wade your way through and and find find a way to get through it so um throughout my time playing tennis my body weight was usually around like 160 to 170 pounds mm -hmm. and then for about three years like when i wasn't exercising i never stepped foot on a scale and then one day i was just like oh i'm looking really heavy i stepped on a scale and i was like 200 pounds 
And like, just when you see that number, you're just like, holy shit. Oh. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, did I really like let myself go like that much? Mm. And it was just like that moment where I'm like, okay, I can't let this go on any further. Mm. So I, I have to like start exercising again and creating a game plan so I can lose this weight. What did you start to do? Uh, at first I started running. I don't like running. <laughs> just, I find it very boring. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I can only like, with my own thoughts like that for like 20 minutes like right. once, once you go past that it's just like i'm like i'm so bored yeah i just can't wait for this to end and it's just hard to stay motivated mm-hmm. um doing that how long did you run for i tried running like five to six miles like and like that's when i was running for like an hour or so but i did i was not able to sustain that yeah so. that's a lot the motivation to continue doing it was very hard just because I was not finding any pleasure from from that activity. I ended up going to a weight room at the gym, um, lifting weights. That came very easily to me. And like week to week, I would just see progress. Like I would be able to lift something a little heavier. Mm. Um, so, and I found it fun just because you're really just doing like 15 to 30 seconds of work and then yeah. taking like a 10 minute rest yeah so <laughs> that's nice <laughs> yeah so that was that was easy for me and I, I started like i actually genetically like i put on muscle very quickly uh-huh. so within like two months like i could see like a change in my body wow. composition so that kept me motivated And, and at the same time, you're still pursuing your filmmaking career. So I'm also curious about how you balanced those things, because filmmaking in general yeah. is a very lots of long hours, mm-hmm. lots of, you know, looking at footage, lots of editing, lots of sitting. You know, how did you find the balance between those things? And did they ever inform each other? Yeah, when I first started, my, my, my workouts were very sporadic. Like, I would do it maybe, like, once a week or, like, anytime I had free time. So it wasn't really, like, on my mind all the time. But at the same time, like, I wasn't seeing the progress that I'm seeing now. Like, that I'm more dedicated to it and I have, like, a, a program that mm-hmm. I'm following. So Did you find it hard when, like, you would do shoots and stuff? Like, I know when I'm on set, mm-hmm. it's um, my anxiety peaks up a little bit because I'm like, oh, I won't be able to probably exercise because I'm going to be working for 12 hours today (laughs) and like and also like craft services always being around and like and you need that you need that energy throughout the day to keep going so yeah that's always been a kind of a challenge for me I'm one I'm curious about how you've been able to handle that when when that comes up well I'm not on set that much anymore Mm -hmm. um earlier on in beginning my career when I was producing short films like I've done like 15 short films so at that time wow yeah, there there'd be like a week where I would just not do anything just because I got to prepare, I got to prep for this. And then yeah. we're shooting, we're shooting like 12, 14 hours a day. I'm working like 16, 18, like preparing for these shoots. So there's just no time to exercise whatsoever. At that point, like I just didn't really think about it. But then after the shoot, I would feel like crap and be like, mm-hmm. I need to get into the gym. So you wouldn't actually feel the effects of it until after it was all done, probably because you're yeah. just running on adrenaline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. Um, so as as you said over the last um it's been about two years now since you found powerlifting. Yeah. Um how did that transition happen and why did it happen? So when I found powerlifting, 
um, it was I, it was kind of unintentional because at the time, like my weight was coming coming back up. It was creeping back up, and I was like, oh, I have like three months where I'm working from home. I have time to go to the gym on a regular basis, and I have time to like take care of my nutrition. So I'm gonna try to lose like 15 pounds without losing any muscle mass. So in order to do that, I'm just gonna like. I have like a hypertrophy program where I'm just doing like high reps of weights to like, you know, hold onto the muscle while just like losing fat. Yeah. So I'm doing that. And, um, one of the main, the two main movements I'm doing are the bench press and the squat. Mm-hmm. And as I'm doing this, it's like, per, it's like every week I'm adding like 10 pounds to the weight to the point where I felt like I was the strongest person in the weight room. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is like pretty cool. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't think like I could do something like this. And um, I actually have a cousin that's a powerlifting coach. So, oh, really? Yeah, I do. Yeah. But like when he was doing this, like I never really like talked to him about it and never really paid attention to it. But I'm like, oh, Elish, my cousin, he's a powerlifting coach. Like, let me see like what he's doing and like talk to him about it. And it's like this sport that people compete in. Right. in like different weight classes where you go to this competition they have judges um and you go on a platform you squat you bench and you deadlift and whoever gets the highest total in your weight class uh wins yeah so i'm looking at their numbers and i'm looking at my numbers i'm like oh i think i could like eventually you know be competitive in this <laughs> so i just started researching like um training programs learned about it online and just like set out a game plan to like increase mm-hmm. my total and mm-hmm. like within months like my numbers started just like creeping up and I got addicted to it so mm-hmm. it just, yeah it became like my main source of like exercise and it was something I, I felt motivated to do like I did with tennis back in the yeah. day and where like my my diet and my sleep and my like water intake was no longer about like how I looked but like achieving this tangible goal Right. Um, and I just like when I have something like that in my life, it just feels a lot healthier. Yeah. Mentally, because like negative thoughts don't creep in as much and you just feel like motivated to achieve something. The counting calories and stuff, that's really something I only do when I'm trying to lose weight to right. like, get down to the weight yeah. class. But it's not something you really need. To OK, do. that's good. That's good. Scaling, yeah. scaling your food. Yeah. <laughs> I scale yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. I measure, like, the grams and everything. Right. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, I just look at it as data. I don't yeah. really... I try to, like, not think about it, like, oh, if I eat too much today, I'm going to get right. fat. I'm just like, it's okay, data. I know if I eat a little bit more today, like, I'll have more energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can... And, like, when I'm dieting, it actually helps because I can't restrict my calories too much, otherwise I would muscle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, like, it's, like, playing this game of... Uh, when when to eat less and when to eat more based on my training program right. and where I'm at in that like cycle. Right, and it's like mentally realizing that yeah. food is fuel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I love food. I love food. Oh, you I mean, <laughs> passionate about food. But yes, food is also fuel. Very important to <laughs> to treat it as such. <laughs> You'd mentioned you started getting into powerlifting also because you saw the, the numbers on the scale start to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just, I'm wondering about, uh, those are very tangible things yeah. um, that I like intellectually understand. I guess I'm wondering what was going on inside of you and how it made you feel and what you thought about that contributed to you 
pursuing powerlifting or like when you got more interested in that? Like, I guess, was it just the fact that numbers were going up on a scale or was it at all linked to how you were feeling in your body? Definitely both. So um, I think, yeah, from an intellectual perspective, uh, I would say the numbers are what like motivated me. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, just feeling like I'm a strong person, uh, it just helped with my overall like perception of myself. I mean, like we we talked about this before, but like I, I feel like a lot of it stems from my like my identity as an Asian American male, mm-hmm. and that's something I explore a lot in my films too. So there's a connection there. Yeah, I, I just I, I feel like as an Asian American male, like our stories have been whitewashed like mm-hmm. for decades in Hollywood, yeah. and it's like when you especially in the 90s or like if you think like well breakfast at tiffany's or like the or the was it the breakfast yeah. club i'm thinking i'm talking about two different things the mickey rooney <laughs> one is breakfast at tiffany's yeah. but then it's um this club lo, the long, long duck dong is oh that my god that's right yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 16 mm-hmm. candles appetizing food fitting neatly into interesting uh, round pie it's a quiche hmm. how do you spell well, you don't spell it, son. You eat it. <laughs> Things like that. Like, just growing up with, like, that being the only perception of, like, what it is to be an Asian-American male. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just having people come up to you or, or think they can, like, like pick on you because you're not going to fight back. Like, that, right. that's definitely something I've dealt with and people, like, my, my Asian friends have dealt with as well. Yeah. So just like feeling like you're physically strong goes a long way and it feels like, oh, no one's going to like try to start anything. At yeah. Any point. yeah. Do, do you feel like, can you track that through your childhood? Like seeing, you know, the images the media has put out and that Hollywood has put out over mm-hmm. many, many, many years. Yeah. Um, can you describe that connection for you as far as like how it directly affected your pursuit of the lifestyle that you had when you were younger versus the lifestyle you have today well when i was younger i don't think i fully understood it mm-hmm. or i didn't really like think about it critically yeah. and that really wasn't until maybe i was like 2014 or 2015 where you know we, people started talking about like um representation in hollywood and yeah. like the me too movement and, and, and things like that it's just like mm-hmm. when that started to come to light publicly that's when i started thinking about it a lot mm-hmm. more and just like analyzing it and really starting to understand myself and, and how it's affected me throughout my life. I, I, I didn't really think about it when I was younger, but it definitely influenced like my insecurities, I think. But uh, yeah, nowadays that I am, I am aware of it uh, and how I move through the world with it. I, f- you know, I felt like there were a lot of improvements after the movie Crazy Rich Asians came out. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, like, finally, like, you know, there's going to be more representation on TV. Like, there's going to be, like, just more respect for Asian Americans in general. Yeah. But then, like, once uh, the pandemic started and there was talk about, like, oh, it's like, uh, let's blame it on China, the China virus. Like, hate crimes in New York just, like, shot up, like, out of nowhere. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's something I've experienced, something I like know like a handful of people who've experienced it. Mm-hmm. And it's, 
it definitely makes me feel like like oh, I, I need to be prepared to like to deal with uh, these type of situations. There are many unsolved bias crimes here in New York City happening since the pandemic started, and most of them are against Asian Americans. I was picking up a takeout from a restaurant one day. This was like I think in May, mm -hmm. maybe it was late May, um, and the mask mandate had just been made like official for like two weeks mm -hmm. in the city and we were in this like small restaurant and this like group of guys just came in without masks um the manager was asking them to like you know, like put on a mask or wait outside they're making a scene and they were just like coming really close to me so i was like guys like please don't stand next to me if you're not gonna wear a mask um they started getting aggressive i told them like i'm not kidding just like back off and then the guy was like yo you're like aren't you from china like you're you're the one who brought the virus here and he's like getting in my face mm -hmm. so i just uh, i started recording yeah. him started yelling at him you say something about being chinese bringing the coronavirus say it again yo boy yo boy get out my face say it again get out my face. just getting in his face he threatened to get a weapon from his car so he mm -hmm. just like ran off um so at that point i was like yeah i don't want to wait and find out yeah. if uh if he's got something so i called the police and i just like i waited in the subway mm. until they arrived and by that point the guys left the yeah and the, and and the police were like well nothing happened so we can't really report it right so classic yeah so nothing really nothing really happened with that it is scary there is just like deeply rooted in like the subconscious of Americans that Asian people don't fight back or you know we're submissive so we're easy targets and I mean I am privileged in the sense that I am male and I'm young and I'm, I'm strong mm -hmm. but there have been so many like elder Asian women that have been attacked like there's one woman in Brooklyn who uh, who had acid thrown on her face yeah. and then like an 89 year old woman like these three kids just came up to her out of nowhere and just put lighter fluid on her and lit her on fire. God, that's, oh, yeah, so it's just terrible. like it's definitely because there are certain people out there that feel like Asian Americans will fight back, right? And they can get away with it, right? Yeah. And none of this is new, like you were saying. No. You know, yeah. it's it's been baked into our culture for <laughs> forever <laughs> yeah. since it started. You know, since this country, you know since we stole this land. Um, yeah, so that makes sense. I mean, that link that you talk about, um, has it felt like, I, I know, it, so talking about powerlifting, being a way to feel strong, and mm. that that is, that is essentially like what kind of continues to feed that for you. Um, when you're in those situations, as you were, you know, uh, in May, if you're in a space and that's happening, um, I guess what's your what's your instinct in that moment? Is it it seems like in May it was not to fight back, but you definitely made a stand. Mm -hmm. um, and I think fighting back would have probably not been the great. Like, I, I don't want you to fight back because I want yeah. you to be safe, you know, yeah, of um, but I, I, you know, I'm just thinking of experiences now that I've had about um, moments on the subway or on the subway platform when you witness something really terrible happening to someone else. And just especially in New York City, the way people kind of pass by or 
are able to block these things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious about how you've handled yourself knowing that you are a very strong man and, uh, and capable of defending yourself. Um, has there been another event that's happened where you felt the impulse to like intervene or step in because of that? Yeah, no, I've, I've been in certain situations where, where, you know, I, I saw something happening and I would just step in and be like, what are you doing? Don't do that. You know? Yeah. Um, especially on the subway. Cause yeah. even before, even before the lockdown, there were a lot of yeah, for sure. things happening on subway at night. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like I'm, I'm thinking about, um, there was, I think the first time I saw something really horrible happen on a subway platform was when I was younger. Yeah. Actually, I'll make this super personal. So when I was, um, how old was I? 19? I think I was 19. Um, and I was getting on a train really late. It was technically early in the morning after I realized that I, you know, I was released from some short film I was shooting. And, mm-hmm. um, I got on the second to last subway car and a man uh, who was probably drugged out of his mind, just like out of his mind, um, began to masturbate uh, about a foot away from my face on an empty subway car. And my instinct in that moment was to like, I just froze. And I'm actually, we're talking a lot about this and I'm doing this yoga training right now. And we're talking about that fight or flight and we don't always talk about freezing and how how shameful that made me feel that I because I you know as as a woman I'm like yeah but I'm strong like girl power you know um, I can defend myself um, I can stand up for myself but in that moment as a 19 year old I was frozen and I didn't do anything for about five minutes just because I was so afraid and when I finally did it became a fight instinct um, mm-hmm. but. It's just I'm interested. I'm interested because we don't really talk about the. We always say fight or flight, and we don't always say freeze. And because freeze is an act of like what some people may call like a, a kind of a passive act, um, I think that carried a lot of surprising shame, um, which oh, yeah. with me for me in that moment. Um, and looking back on it, like still, and I've worked through it, but like there are still moments where I'm like I should have done something why didn't I say something and then after that moment happened years later uh I was shooting on the street in the East Village and a huge crew is surrounding me I'm in a scene with an actor and a group of drunk men are walking down the street where we're filming and one of them just puts his hand right underneath my skirt and grabs a hold of me and literally does what the president said to, yeah. <laughs> he can do and uh, went off and laughed and his friends laughed it off. And I, in that moment, because of what I think I had been through earlier, screamed, like lost it. And I just yelled at him. I was like, you don't put your hands on me. Like <laughs> lost it. And we were like right uh, outside of a restaurant with like pu- people in the public, like all around. And then I felt shame for standing up for myself. Because everyone was suddenly looking at me mm-hmm. and no one actually like defended me or like went after the guy or said anything. It was literally just me. And then I suddenly felt like ashamed for that. Did um, he just run off? He did. They just, they went, stumbled off down the street. Oh, wow. Never no to one, be like, seen again. No one, no one, no one, no one did a thing. Everyone just looked at me in mm-hmm. shock that I had that reaction. 
and I and then I remembered I have to I had to like step away for a minute. I think I smoked a cigarette and like sat on the curb. And I think maybe one crew member came up to me and was like, "Are you okay?" Wow. And that was it. And I have so many of them. I mean, that's those are two stories. I got a ton of those stories. Now, did you did you feel like after that experience you would speak up every time after? Or I I did. Vary? I think I think honestly, like I think that what happened to me in the subway when I was nineteen, um, it flipped some kind of fire switch in me where like I I think I was something in me was just like, You're never going to be in that position again. Mm-hmm. I won't allow your I won't allow you to be in that position again. So ever since when anything has happened, even but even in a maybe more extreme way than I hope. I, like would hope I would do like ca- being catcalled on the street and just like literally if I don't have my headphones in and I know that they know that I can hear them I have to say something back to them which isn't maybe a smart thing honestly it can get you into a lot of trouble um but I'm five yeah. nine I'm pretty strong I think it would take a lot for someone to do something to me especially in public I'm but obviously that is possible and that's you know always a possibility for me out there so but yeah it's definitely ever since then anything small or big I I definitely feel and react in a very different way than I did back then it's much it's more I'm always a fighter now yeah (laughs) whether it's dumb or smart to do it at the moment in the moment no I feel the same way actually Um, yeah and I mean I feel like that's because I've had experiences when I was younger where you know it's like being bullied or yep. just like you know like older like in high school like seniors picking on you when you're a freshman yeah um just like those experiences and just like fighting back kind of like created this mindset where I'm in that position I will just instinctively go into like defend yourself mode yeah um but I, I think it's totally understandable it's like if you've never experienced something like that before like once the instinct just kicks in it's not like a logical response you're just doing what your body is telling you to do right and i'm and i'm so curious about the chemistry in everybody's bodies that makes us respond differently Mm -hmm. um which i'm still learning about but that have you seen the film force majeure what's it called force 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 majeure no what is that so it's a swedish film um by Ruben Osland. He he also directed uh, The Square, which okay. won like the Palme d'Or. I've heard a of that few one. Years yeah. ago. Uh-huh. So this film, uh, it's about a, a young family that goes on vacation uh, in the French Alps. Mm-hmm. They're going skiing. And this isn't a spoiler. It happens like within the first like 10 minutes of the movie. Oh, I have seen um, this. I have seen this. Yes, where they're like The avalanche happens? The av- yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The father just like runs off. Yeah, and, and leaves he, like, his entire he, family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and they're just like dealing with the aftermath. <laughs> I, I feel like that's like that like fight or flight like situation where it's like yeah. just in the moment like adrenaline kicked in and that was his response and he just like it, he questions like am I like a good husband am I a good father yeah. and uh, yeah. yeah it's just I, I think it's just human nature. Yeah, and I guess we've all like evolved or adapted or our genes are just mm-hmm. specific and and have predetermined yeah. that for us already. 
I mean, yeah. they kind of say like science in, in, in many ways can be like, yeah, there's no free will, actually, because you're already <laughs> genetically <laughs> built yeah. in such a way that your decisions are going to be made for you. You know, you have you don't actually have a say in how you're going to react to things. Um, but I don't know if I totally believe that. I think as a as a, a yoga enthusiast, I'm I'm more um, inclined to believe that with a lot of time and effort, we can start to. One of the biggest lessons I've learned in the yoga world, actually, especially as like an actor in a yoga world, is, oh, I can react to something, but it doesn't mean I have to do anything about it. Like I can have an emotional experience to something and it doesn't mean that I that means I need to, you know, react a certain way outwardly. Like have your have your feelings. It's all about feelings. You should feel everything you feel. But detaching that from like an immediate response has been a, a an interesting journey for me over just the past like couple of years, really. And I think this is probably all linked to the trauma that I've experienced, whether it was the guy in the subway or various yeah. other, you know, events that have happened. But because those things have kind of trained my, I think my body chemistry to react in an aggressive way. If, if I feel like I'm in danger now, yeah. it's it's an immediate like I like talking about it right now. I can feel like my palms are sweating and like I feel like my heart's increasing. And you also had like so much you had so much time to reflect on it, too. And I feel like that's probably helped like condition or like create some sort of muscle memory where uh, when you're in that situation again, you're going to react differently. Right. Right. I've like yeah. kind of reprogrammed or 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 maybe I don't know. I've either reprogrammed myself or I'm working on reprogramming myself because I'm trying to be less um, response oriented or like you're going to have a reaction, but you don't necessarily need to have a response, I guess, is the thing. So, yeah, um, because you don't always it's I've been rethinking it, too, actually. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because like my like my instinct is always just to like fight back or just if, you know, I s see someone committing injustice, like yeah. I'm going to say something. Right. But um. Man, over the pandemic, like especially in Prospect Heights, like and Crown Heights, shootings have been like way up. Like yeah. it's like not so bad right now, but like in July and August it was really bad. And um actually one night in I think it was early August, um there was someone got shot right in front of my window. Like oh and I was God. sitting right there. Um, like I didn't see it, but I heard it and we called the police and yeah, he, he unfortunately passed away, mm -hmm. but just like that kind of made me think like, Oh, like all these shootings just feel so random. Yeah. Um, and I feel like if I say something to like the wrong person, you know, that could happen to me. And I never like really considered that before right. these events. So it's like a I'm, new sense of your mortality in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. I haven't rethinking it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that's good. Maybe we should do yeah. some yoga together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's been helping me a little bit, kind of temper down. Yeah. But you know, and I said this earlier, like me as an actor, I've been taught to just you know something happens to you in a scene in a moment, and it like hits uh -huh. you here, and you're supposed to immediately react or do something about it, yeah. um, because that is drama. That's dramatic. It's tension. That's what people want to watch. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's so necessary for storytelling, at least seeing someone wrestle with their reaction or their response to something that's happened to them. Um, because I think that's also, that's human nature, right? Yeah. Like, and I guess that's what yoga is trying to, you know, uh, at least yogic philosophy is trying to, to show us that like, yes, that is human nature. 
But enlightenment is over here on this hand. And you can have all these human, very human behaviors and thoughts and feelings. Um, but we don't necessarily let those things drive the car. You mm -hmm. know, you don't want the hysterical, aggressive fighter necessarily to be driving the car yeah, during no, a road trip. I totally right? agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's definitely, dangerous. you know, like I, and I love that you are fiery and passionate and like want to stand up for people because i feel and i feel like i'm the same way um but at the same time we have to make sure we're taking care of ourselves yeah. in that mm -hmm. and being safe and and um and just picking your battles too. yeah pick your battles to go a little off it's not really off topic but i'll i'll say one more thing about my yoga training which is just for some reason really in my mind right now um we were talking about uh satya truthfulness which is a yama um and also my boyfriend's name um and uh that was like the subject of our discussion my last class and you know one of the one of the writings we read was always tell the truth obviously like being truthful is very important and essential um but you also don't want to cause harm which is ahimsa nonviolence, practicing nonviolence. so if you know there's a truth that will hurt somebody in this mm -hmm. particular writing, it was like, then you don't say the thing or you don't speak the truth. And that deep in me hit me very deeply. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I, uh -uh, uh -uh. I will always speak the truth. I will try to be as kind about it as I can. But I think truth ultimately, like the big truth is the most important thing. Because you can't... Yeah. If, if, you, if you're just letting things go, I mean, this is how liberal, white, progressive people have convinced themselves, you know, that racism is purely a morality thing. And it's actually just, it just is. Mm -hmm. It's less about you being a good or a bad person. It just exists. And you have it whether you want to or like it or not. It's, it's in you. It's baked in because you can't escape from that in our culture and our society. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I think it's the same with, like, sexism, too. It's like, it's something yeah. that... It's ingrained to us um, because that's how society is structured. And in order to not be sexist as a man, you have to reprogram yourself. Right. Like you have to unlearn it. Right. Right. And it takes time and you have to and you have to be able to call yourself out and you have to be able yeah. to call out the people that you love around you. And I think that ultimately is an act of nonviolence because tiptoeing around white people's feelings isn't actually going to better them. It'll just perpetuate the same thing. So if we want to actually seek ahimsa and nonviolence, we have to be truthful, whether it hurts or not. So mm -hmm. that that's a tangent I just went on, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all related. I'm glad though you brought up sexism and toxic masculinity because I think we're I think we're ready for our next segment, yes. the tea the tea Let's section. Well, I think, I mean, this is a generalization just based on my own, like, anecdotal experience and just, like, my own perception of it uh, before I started powerlifting. But I always saw, like, you know, lifting weights, like, to the point where you're looking like this, like, huge, juiced-up, like, bodybuilder. It, it, yeah. just, it just felt, like, really vain and just oozing with, like, toxic masculinity. Where right. it's like, oh, like, like, I have more value as a person than you because I'm really, really strong. Mm -hmm. um, and I always had this, like, misperception of it. Uh, until I actually started powerlifting myself. Um, but like ever since I've joined a powerlifting gym, like the community there has been 
fantastic. Everyone's so friendly, like willing to help each other out. Um, they're everyone's cheering you on to be the best you can be. You know, like numbers don't matter. It's just are you better than you were the day before? I know women mm -hmm. are more involved in powerlifting now, and yes. I guess uh -huh. that started happening in the 1970s and with the second wave of feminism and everything. But mm -hmm. I know you had mentioned like over the last seven or eight years, it's kind of shifted and, and it's more there's actually a more equal amount of women as well as men involved in powerlifting. Yeah. And I'm curious about like the women in your life who are powerlifters and, you know, if if there's if they're still kind of dealing with this stuff, like where where is that toxic masculinity coming up in that world right now, if anywhere? Yeah, so um, I compete in a drug-tested federation. So it's like they 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 test you for steroids and, yeah. and like other other compounds. Um, PEDs, performance yeah, PEDs, drugs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and they they abide by like the Olympic rules. Yeah. So if you get caught, you're like banned for four years. Uh, you get caught again, you're banned for life. Wow. So what I compete in, like, we don't really deal with that. Everyone who's doing it, like, competitive, somewhat competitively, is probably doing it for health reasons and just as a, a fun activity. But I, I think um, female participation has increased significantly due to the popularity of CrossFit. So I don't know too much about CrossFit, but I know that they um, they have the squat and the deadlift as like mm -hmm. a, a main move, competition movement. And I believe maybe in like 2013 or 2014, there were some like high profile like CrossFitters that kind of transitioned over to powerlifting. Oh, and, okay. Um, yeah. And because of like their following on YouTube, I think a lot more women started trying the sport. Mm -hmm. And now I'd say participation in um well the federation i compete in is the united states uh powerlifting usapl and i'd say participation is like 50 50 uh, men and women. wow that's amazing so, yeah. oh and then i wanted to to um i was curious about what you said in the last seven to eight years you said more kind of nerdy or geeky men are interested in powerlifting <laughs> because of well this is this is just from what i noticed uh -huh. but like in the USAPL specifically, I feel like a lot of the people who compete that are over the age of 25 um, work in some sort of white collar profession. Huh. And a large number of them are like software engineers, I've noticed. Interesting. Yeah. So I, 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 want, I think it's like the, just like the analytical nature of powerlifting where you're tracking like your diet, yeah. like the amount of calories you consume, your macronutrients, like your protein, yeah. carbs, fats. Um, the progress of your lifts, like the amount of volume you're doing mm -hmm. and your recovery, we're actually like tracking everything to a T and, and monitoring the progress. I wonder if that has something to do with it. I, I have a theory, but I know so little about this stuff. So what's your theory? I just read this article and I posted it on the on the free body Instagram actually that was on The Guardian. And it was about a man who when he was a kid, he admired his mother very much deeply mm -hmm. loved his mother as many boys do and or and should and uh, he went to his first haircut and he told the hairdresser that he wanted his hair to be long like his mom and in that mm -hmm. moment his mom and the hairdresser i guess looked at each other and had this kind of moment of oh no this kid you know, and he felt that like as and I think he was maybe five. He was young, 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 young. And 
instantly felt shame for wanting, for admiring his mother and admiring feminine qualities. Um, and that has affected him and followed him throughout his entire life to the point where when he was an adult, he was, he wanted to get super shredded. He did all these things with his body. He was hyper restrictive, like doing things that he, that he acknowledges aren't healthy and got to a certain place because he wanted to feel, he was trying to put on this masculine thing, what our, what our culture has defined as masculinity. Um, yeah. And that, and it goes again to toxic masculinity, like this perpetuation in, in our society that if you're, if you want your hair to be long or if you admire quote unquote feminine qualities, then you're somehow less of a man. Mm-hmm. And I think I mean, this is this is what's so messed up about sexism in general. Is it like sexism doesn't just affect women; it affects men deeply, and and yeah. and because it affects everybody, society has been just is running on these on these ideas that aren't true. They're actually not a thing. Like it's it's all um, it's all manufactured. Oh, totally. You know, and it's been in our culture and society for a very, very long time. So it's kind of, it's hard. We're starting to try to extricate ourselves out of it and away from it. And I mean, that's why these conversations are so important because part of it is that people aren't talking about it or their own individual experience with like why they're drawn to doing a certain thing because they don't want to necessarily admit that it's because of, you know, because I don't want to feel like a girl or I don't want people to Mm -hmm. think that I'm a girl or think that I'm feminine because in our society, that is less than a man, <laughs> you know? I, I mean, I, I know a lot of female power lifters who um, deal with sexism on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yes. Where it's like, oh, like strength is going to make you masculine or, you know, like unattractive. Yep. But it's not true at all. And it, I, I just feel like there are a lot of men who say that and feel emasculated by strong women. Yeah. Just because of, you know, like we're conditioned to to believe women should be like subservient right. and just, you know, feel like they need a man, right. you know, in a sense. And that that kind of takes it away from them. It's interesting. I, I can't really talk too much into the topic. I think it's better suited to have a, feel, a female power sure, talk sure. about it. But, um, I mean, I just it's, told it's you all about what yeah. I think men are like. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm just talking well, way out of turn yeah. right now. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, ultimately yeah. the whole point is just like, these are the things that I think we just all need to start talking about and being honest about as much as we can. Yeah. Practicing satya. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as he would want us to do. I think we're at our last uh, segment, which is called The Cherry on Top. Knowing that we, we've had quite a conversation, we've covered a lot of different topics in this talk. It's been amazing. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything left that you'd like to say to someone out there that you think was important to you on your journey that you want to pass on? Well, whatever you do in your fitness journey, I'd say just try to find something that you have fun doing and you feel like you can just, you can throw yourself into it, not because of how it's going to affect how you look, but like you want to see progress in whatever sport or activity you choose to do. For me, at least, I have a much healthier relationship with the sport because I'm more interested in seeing the progress and like the numbers and um, I I enjoy like going into the gym four times a week and just getting under a bar and just working on my technique and just 
feeling the weight on top of me, you know? Also, just in general, uh, I think everyone should try powerlifting. It doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter how old you are, I think everyone should try it at some point. Um, because one, the health benefits are great. Smart and continuous resistance training combined with proper nutrition, I think promotes uh, joint health and it has been scientifically proven to increase bone density. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's especially important for like older women who are at like increased risk of osteoporosis. Yeah. Um, and actually I've, I've seen women in their 70s compete in the USAPL. There's this one woman, I forget her name, I think it's Susan Elwin. She's in her 70s, she weighs like 120 pounds and she can like squat like 270 or something wow. like that. Something crazy oh like that, like God. double her body weight. Thank you so much for listening. To follow Javian's journey, you can follow him on Instagram at Let Them Eat Way and check out his latest short film Contours linked in the notes of this episode. And finally, if you want to keep hearing body stories, please, please, please subscribe and follow us on social media at Free Body Podcast. I want to just also say a hearty thank you to the folks supporting this pod so far. I, I can't tell you how much it means, and I'm so glad that these conversations are getting some real love. I'll be here next week. Until then, stay well.